Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. The symptoms of a stroke, well, you need to act fast. Facial asymmetry, arm weakness, speech difficulties, time to call 911. But what happens next? Well, if you're brought to one of the emergency rooms here in the islands, and again, the sooner the better, you might be in time to get some particular medication or even procedures that could lessen the effects of stroke. Dr. Kazuma Nakagawa, Queen's Medical Director of Obstetric Neurovascular Services, is here to tell us more about the process and what it takes to be a comprehensive stroke center here in the islands. Dr. Nakagawa, welcome to The Body Show. Thanks for inviting me here today. Now, we were talking just briefly before the show about symptoms and concerns about strokes. Strokes are episodes where something stops blood flow to certain areas of your brain. And in doing so, depending on what areas of your brain, you wind up having symptoms that are pretty classic for a stroke. So you can either have bleeding strokes or clotting strokes. And if they affect certain areas of your brain, you might have some classic features. There's a little mnemonic called FAST, facial asymmetry, or like part of your face is drooping. Arm weakness also could be leg weakness. Some people wind up noticing that their speech is slurred. And if there's any concern about stroke, that's something that usually should result in a quick call to the ER and maybe showing up there, depending on how long ago the symptoms started. What do you tell people to do if they think they're having a stroke? They have to call 911 right away. Don't drive yourself. Don't drive. There's going to be a lot of delay if you try to bring your loved one to the hospital by private vehicle. The reason is when the EMS gets notified and attend and recognizes the stroke, then during the trans- transport process, they would call the primary stroke center that the patient's coming and get ready. And, and, and during that time, the hospital is going to get ready. The ER is going to wait for the patient. They're going to clear the CT scanner. The stroke team's going to be there waiting for the patient to arrive. Well, if you come into the triage ER entrance, then there, there's going to be a lot of long delay before the stroke patients get seen by a stroke team. Now, what if it's something that you went, boy, I think... Grandpa's had those symptoms for the last four days. Should you still act urgently? Absolutely. Because um, that symptom could, could have been the warning sign, and there could be another uh, stroke uh, that's coming uh, very quickly. So don't bring Grandpa in your own car. And Grandpa, don't drive yourself because you could have another event while on the road. That's right. There really is an advantage when you call 911, the EMS or the emergency medical services comes directly to you and then can start doing some things to help you. IV fluids or a variety of different things get you into the ambulance and get you to the closest center that's available to take care of you. That's right. And also to get the definitive treatment for stroke, there's a strict inclusion and exclusion criteria, meaning that certain people cannot be on certain uh, blood thinning medications or a recent surgery and so on. And the EMS people can start getting those history beforehand. So that way, when the patient arrives, you can have all the the needed history in hand uh, to give that treatment right away. Now, there's a time element. If you can get to a medical center within a certain time window, you have different options for treatment. What is that time window, and why is it so important? Sure. So the key number is uh, four and a half hours, so four hours and 30 minutes from stroke onset, is when uh, we can give the clot-busting medication called uh, TPA, which is a drug that we can give through the IV 
uh, and then it, theoretically it's going to melt the clot and then uh, open up the blood vessel. And we can't really give that medication beyond that time because the risk of bleeding uh, inside the brain goes up significantly after that point. So this is a medicine that busts through a clot. Yep. So that if you have a clot kind of a stroke, then this could potentially reverse the symptoms of stroke. If you have a bleed kind of a stroke, you wouldn't use a medicine like this. Right. That's why we can't start the medication in the field because we really need to get a CAT scan to determine whether there's a hemorrhagic stroke or ischemic stroke, which is a clot type of stroke. And some of the clot types of strokes over the course of time, it could be several hours or so, if you were to give the clot buster, you might actually lead to bleeding. It could transform into a bleed event That's after right. you had the clot stroke. So right. time is of the essence. Right. And then really that medication works the best if it's given within the first 90 minutes. So really, the sooner, the absolute better. Right. Even that four-and-a-half-hour window, you're kind of hitting the edge for which it really could be beneficial. Right. And mathematical model of stroke suggests that every minute uh, of stroke, you lose about 2 million brain cells. It's actually 1.9, but around 2 million brain cells every minute you're not getting the treatment. Okay, if I'm losing 2 million brain cells, how many do I have? Billions, but I don't know the exact okay. number. I've got billions. So if I lose two million, that's bad, but I've got a bunch. <laughs> okay. Now, if you have a large enough clot and it's identified early, there's some new things that could potentially be done at certain centers here in the islands with particular expertise. What are those new things? A uh, neurointerventionalist uh, or neurointerventional surgeon uh, can do a minimally invasive surgery or procedure where uh, that person would puncture or ar femoral artery from the groin and thread a small little catheter all the way up to the brain and then mechanically take the clot out. And that can be done at uh, certain institutions here on Oahu. So it's like a clot extractor. So you right. can safely go in. You start down almost like a heart catheterization. You start exactly. in the groin and you go up and you bypass the heart and you head up to those blood vessels that head to the brain. And we talked earlier and I said, why don't we just start closer to the brain? And the answer seemed somewhat obvious after you shared it with me. So the reason we start way down in the groin is because if there's a problem or if there's a complication, there's a long amount of space between the groin and the brain. If you have a complication, you get a little air in there or something and you're up towards the brain already, Boy, that's too close. That's right. So you really want to start further away. Groin would be the location. And so you could potentially thread this tiny catheter all the way up inside the brain, and you could kind of get that clot out of there. Right. And then the big stroke with a big clot really can't be dissolved to a clot-busting medication. An analogy is sort of like plumbing. You know, like if you have some kind of a... Um, a blockage in your plumbing system. You can put some drain oil. You can try that. But if it's really big, then you're going to call your plumber and get the rotor rooter to get the stuff out. Absolutely. And in my case, it's usually my hair, which is always <laughs> clogging the drain. And no amount of Drano is going to bust through that. I have to stop letting it get in the drain. <laughs> so you're right. I mean, depending on the situation, there could really be a large clot that could have could have gone to the brain. What would cause such a large clot? I mean, when we think about strokes. I often think of tiny little lacuna strokes. The lacoon, these tiny little strokes where you may or may not actually have a lot of symptoms. You see them on CAT scans or MRIs. They're tiny little dots, and they usually represent small little episodes of a stroke. What would cause such a large clot that would give someone a big stroke? Sure. So uh, majority of the large stroke comes from the heart. It's called cardioembolic stroke. 
And overwhelmingly, the majority of the reason is from atrial fibrillation, which is a very common uh, arrhythmia that a lot of people have. And atrial fibrillation is when you have a regular heartbeat, and sometimes there's no symptom from that. Some people get palpitation or some kind of a... um, you know, lightheadedness and whatnot, but most of the time you don't feel anything. And what happens is that the left atrium, which is a small little pocket in the heart, uh, starts to quiver. And that itself is not a big deal for the most part uh, every day, but what that creates is a little stagnant pool within the heart that makes the blood prone to clot. You know, the blood blood is like lava. You know, if it's moving, it stays as a liquid, but if it slows down, it solidifies and clot. So that, that's a very good Hawaii way to think about it. So, blood is like lava. If it gets, if it doesn't move, then it turns into, you know, rock hard lava. And if it's moving, it's that cool stuff we see on TV, the orangey. And it's actually a good analogy. It's like orangey red. It's like moving, right? So you've got a great analogy. Blood is like lava. Don't let it stop moving. That's right. And the problem with atrial fibrillation is that if, you, if it doesn't cause any pain or any kind of a discomfort, uh, some people elect not to be on the blood thinning medication, and that's the problem. It's going to increase the risk of forming clot one day and gets dislodged to the brain and cause a big stroke. So if you are one of those folks who has fibrillation, you really should think seriously about taking medication. And, you know, a lot of people are afraid of Coumadin or Warfarin, one of the medicines that has been kind of the mainstay up until recently for blood thinning. But now there's other opportunities. There's other medications that you mentioned are particularly effective for some folks who might live here in the islands. You just came back from a from an international conference. What were some of the things that you learned about these newer anticoagulant or blood thinner medicines that might help particular populations here? Sure. So um, over the last maybe six six years or so, a lot of the randomized trials have shown that these newer um, anticoagulation medications are uh, more effective or just as effective as warfarin or Coumadin and uh, have lower bleeding risk. Um, and what we what what I just found out from the International Stroke Conference is that um, Asians and Asian Americans, uh, in fact, have a higher bleeding complication rate compared to Caucasians, but uh, that seems to be way worse if you're on warfarin or Coumadin, and that bleeding risk is much lower if you are on these newer anticoagulations. So the conclusion from that session was that if Asians, Asian Americans would benefit a lot more from being on these newer uh, anticoagulant compared to the Coumadin or warfarin than Caucasians. Well, and that's something we need to know about right here in the islands. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and you're listening to The Body Show. Today we have Dr. Kazuma Nakagawa, Queen's Medical Director of Obstetric Neurovascular Services, here to tell us more about comprehensive stroke care right here in the islands. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about some of the procedures that can be done and how we can really try and avoid having strokes to begin with. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Locations, Nohea Gallery, and Straub Clinic and Hospital. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today I'm in the studio with Dr. Kazuma Nakagawa. He's Queen's Medical Director of Obstetric Neurovascular Services and a neurologist that is part of the telemedicine service that helps to service some of the hospitals around the islands. Not only does this provide excellent neurologic care for folks here on Oahu, but also North Hawaii Community Hospital, Hilo Medical Center, Kona Medical Center, part-time in Maui, Molokai, Wahiwa here, Queens West, and also Queens Downtown. 
you're a busy guy. Thanks for coming here today to share with us some information about strokes. Now, right before the break, we were talking about the fact that Asians and Asian Americans can benefit in particular from the newer anticoagulants that are used for people who have a a risk of developing clots, particularly that category of folks who have atrial fibrillation. When, When you see folks who have had a stroke and they've had the clot type of a stroke, how many of those, just a general percentage, do you think would have benefited from blood thinners had they taken it beforehand? So they might have had a medical condition, and maybe they just didn't want to take blood thinners or their doctors didn't give it to them. Is it like half of the people that you see that had they been on blood thinners could have helped? Or are we seeing that some of these clot strokes happen in folks who never had any symptoms, we never knew they had fibrillation, and there was no way to predict it? I think more than half the patients come in with stroke did not have any history of atrial fibrillation anecdotally. And then we discover atrial fibrillation later on. It's kind of hard to find it. You know, you talked about people who sometimes have symptoms, palpitations, and and other sorts of things. But in a lot of cases, you could have an episode of AFib, feel fine, walk around, exercise, live your life, never know it. That's right. So that's why it becomes so dangerous. Right. Could you, I guess... Could most people check their pulse? Maybe they would find it. Hard to know because I would imagine that if you don't know what your pulse really feels like, even if you did detect a slight irregularity, it might not be enough to alarm you to go to see your doctor. Yeah, I think atrial fibrillation is really hard to detect uh, just by checking the pulse. Um, So monitoring becomes an issue. If for someone who's had a stroke... And you don't know why. And let's presume that it was a clot stroke. So they're put on blood thinners because we presume there was a clot coming from somewhere. What sort of workup do we need to do? What sort of test does that individual need to do to see what the cause is? There's a list of things. And can we just detect that fibrillation with one EKG? Or do we have to think about monitoring for a longer duration of time? Right. So uh, the the data is very clear that the longer you monitor, the more days you're going to catch that atrial fibrillation. So one day of EKG or telemetry is not enough anymore. Uh, minimum 14 days is indicated. And a lot of the uh, trials have shown that, you know, if you have an implantable recorder, you actually implant it under the skin over the chest. For about a year, the, the detection rate goes up. But I'm not saying that we, everyone should be on that. But um, I feel that a lot of people get discharged without having these long-term monitoring devices. And nowadays, they're actually kind of easy. I mean, the implantable one is a little bit more more invasive, but you can actually wear, you know, we used to do the old Holter monitor. This was a 24-hour monitor, and you would have someone wear it, and it was basically a couple of leads on the chest, and they'd have a little box, almost like a pager, and it would record their, their heart rate for a day. But now they actually have patches that can actually monitor your heart, in which case you could wear it and you could shower, you could go do all your activities, and it would record your heart for two weeks so that it doesn't have to be a big invasive procedure. There's actually ways we've made it easier. Right. I mean, it looks like a USB drive that you can just like attach it to your chest and then you can't even feel it. And you just take it off when you shower and then you can wear it for 14 days. Now, if you're already on blood thinners because you've had this clot type of a stroke, how important is it to figure out why you had it, if you're going to take blood thinners anyway? Well, we don't really prescribe anticoagulant unless we have the smoking gun these days. So if you don't have atrial fibrillation, it's, it's not very compelling for us to start that. 
So, yes, I mean, we have to find a cause of it. <laughs> because it could come back. Right. You could also be dealing with a problem with a blood clot in your leg. And you could have, mm-hmm. you know, some people have what we call a little hole in the heart called a PFO or Peyton Foramen Ovale. Not that common, but it can happen. And if you have a blood clot in your leg that goes to your lung, it can sneak through that area of your heart, go to your brain. So in which case you'd want to know that. Because that could change what you do to prevent blood clots in your legs. So I guess the idea is figure out why you had it because that could change your treatment. Right. And other uh, important findings from this uh, recent international stroke conference is that um, we often deal with a situation where someone with atrial fibrillation um, had a stroke and then a hemorrhagic stroke, bleeding in the brain on anticoagulation, and afterwards – we don't know what to do with it. Should we restart the anticoagulation or should we stop because that person had hemorrhagic stroke? And the most recent meta-analysis uh, showed that it is beneficial to resume the anticoagulant even if you had hemorrhagic stroke. So in that particular situation, a lot of studies have been done. So they took a look at all those studies together. That's the meta-analysis you looked at. So in someone who's had clot strokes, bleeding strokes, the question becomes, do you dare go on blood thinners again? And the studies have shown, yes, you do. That's right. Because the risk of having another bleed stroke is less than the risk of having another clot stroke. And, you know, sometimes we think about these things and we don't realize the severity. But some strokes, people can be paralyzed permanently for life. It can actually seriously impact your ability to do anything, take care of yourself, be able to, you know, walk again. So the reason why we get so intensely focused on trying to treat stroke is because it may be a tiny one, a mini stroke, and you don't feel it or know any problems that are there, but it also could be a disabling stroke that could alter the rest of your life. That's right. And it really depends on location. It's not necessarily dependent on all patients with fibrillation will have the tiny strokes. Location, location, location. If that clot goes to where your the part of your brain where your arm moves or your leg moves or your speech is affected... There you go. That's the deficit that you're left with. That's right. Um, I mean, not not to minimize the um, heart attack or myocardial infarction, but, you know, if you have a heart attack, you know, your heart function may get uh, a little bit worse. Your exercise tolerance may worsen. But, you know, uh, you're still the same person. You know, your personality hasn't changed. You can still walk. You can still speak. Uh, Well, you know, if you have a stroke, uh, you may become a completely different person. Um. And it can really affect not just the physical aspects, but you also alluded to the fact that depending on where in the brain, it can affect your personality. It can affect your mood. It can affect your ability to speak, to communicate, to interact. We won't take it away from the cardiologist. We know heart attacks are serious, but brain attacks can be even more serious. Right. Now, to do this sort of clot extraction we talked about, you would have to actually come in and have this done within a short window. So we talked a little bit about... The, the TPA, that clot-busting medicine that potentially you could get. But if you were going to be a candidate to have the clot extraction right now where you're at, Queens downtown, they have the neurointensive ICU. They have the whole system set up. They have the interventional ra- neuroradiologist. You kind of have to come to another hospital. Unless you're at Queens or another hospital that does this, you'd really have to come to that location. That's right. Um, you have to come to a facility with a... Uh, ability to perform um, the clot uh, extraction procedure 24-7, and then ideally with a neuro-ICU to take care of that patient after the procedure. And now, could you still do that if you already had the clot-busting medicine? Yes. 
So even with the clot-busting medicine, that clot's still there. We could go in and get it. Right. We could try. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Kazuma Nakagawa, Queen's Medical Director of Obstetric Neurovascular Services. And when we come back, we're going to define what are obstetric neurovascular services? Because not only does Dr. Nakagawa help to run the stroke program, but there are some other unique aspects of people who might be at risk. And we're going to define what that is and what that means. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Kaiser Permanente and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today we're talking about strokes and what happens to the body and the brain when you have a blood flow issue to the brain. This can be really serious. And we have Dr. Kazuma Nakagawa here. He's Queen's Medical Director of something I had never heard about, Obstetric Neurovascular Services. Now, we've been talking a bit about strokes. Call 911 if you think you're having one. There are some options if you're seen early. Potentially, you could have clot-busting medicine. Potentially, you could have a clot extraction, depending on your symptoms and what sort of stroke you're having. And now, I want to talk about obstetric neurovascular services, because, you know, that's a combination I don't hear often. And not only are you taking care of patients who have strokes all across the islands and doing the teleradiology or teleneurology program, and not only are you part of the downtown Queen's program looking at comprehensive stroke management, what is obstetric neurovascular services? You're establishing a whole new field. This is something we just created last month, actually. Um, I feel better that I didn't know. (laughs) Well, you know, this is an area that um, I think it's being understudied and uh, neglected, which is that, um, first of all, uh, pregnant women, uh, especially after giving birth, are at higher risk for having a stroke or any kind of a clotting problem up to 12 12 weeks after giving birth. Um, So we had a number of patients who uh, had a stroke during pregnancy or after pregnancy, and also uh, they could have issues such as uh, having an aneurysm or AV malformation in the brain and then debating what to do with that during pregnancy. Should we treat that AVM during pregnancy before giving birth? Is it at risk for bleeding? Or some people get uh, what's called preeclampsia or eclampsia uh, even after giving birth, which can cause uh, a stroke and brain hemorrhage. And we had a number of those cases recently. And if you really look at the um, like various institutions in the country, there is no dedicated specialist who focuses on pregnancy-related hemorrhagic and ischemic stroke. So we created a system where we can provide services to tailor towards pregnant women or women who want to get pregnant, but they know that they have aneurysm or AV malformation or various uh, vascular conditions within the brain. And we can uh, do a consultation before before delivery and then plan accordingly uh, and, and answer questions such as, should we treat the aneurysm beforehand or should we leave it alone? Uh, should we do any kind of a workup beforehand? Should we uh, deliver early, you know, natural, uh, full-term, C-section, whatnot? Again, this is there's no guideline in this, so we're trying to create one. We're trying to come up with a clinical program to really provide the best care for, um, you know, pregnant uh, patients uh, and then really uh, make sure the baby's okay and the mother's okay. Well, because it's a difficult question now because – We see a lot of women having babies when they're older. We see a lot of changes that can occur during pregnancy. Hormone levels go up. All different things can put you at a higher risk of developing clots. And if you've already had a problem, 
you're in another risk category. And prior to this, we really, again, even now, we don't have enough studies to know exactly what to do. But it sounds like experts like yourself are saying, hey, we need to work on using the medical evidence we do have to do what's absolutely best for the patients. And then take a look at that medical literature and learn if we can establish guidelines that can help people in the future, just like we've used these guidelines we talked about earlier for using clot buster drugs or for doing clot extractions. That information has come based on clinical trials, and it's told us the time window, which is optimal for these various procedures or medications. So now you're establishing what will be clinical guidelines at some point for pregnant women who have strokes or stroke risk or clots. That's right. Hopefully, we'll be the premier center to really push the field forward. Uh, fortunately, we have a nice collaboration with a, a obstetric intensivist uh, at Queen's Medical Center who also works at Capiolani, and as well as the neurointerventionalist. So the three of us are currently the team. It's a small team, but we would like to chip in our expertise from different direction and create a new guideline. Well, and that's what we need because a lot of where medicine is going is looking at the evidence. You know, a lot of people don't understand what evidence-based medicine means. How do you define that to folks? Evidence-based medicine is really backed by uh, science uh, that went through the rigor of a statistical analysis, really eliminating the bi- personal biases and anecdotal sort of emotional feeling attached to patient care. And, you know, certain things in medicine is not very obvious. Um, and evidence-based medicine really distills the practice to what matters, uh, anything that has a proof, really. What's proven to work. Right. We always used to say, you know, an aspirin a day keeps the doctor away, really, because a lot of people who say take aspirin see me anyway. <laughs> so we have to look and see where the proof is. And there's a lot of movements in all different areas in medicine. Cardiology does this, neurology, your field, endocrinology, pretty much every field tries to determine, do we do this because we have proof that it works? Or do we do this because it's the way we've always done it? In which case, let's go find the proof because we want to do what is going to provide the best outcome for patients. So right now, in the process of trying to get out the word that there are these various different types of services available, where where you're functioning as a neurologist is in 10 different areas, from what I can tell, in all these different locations. But if you were to try and tell folks who might be listening what to do if they or someone they love have symptoms or signs of a stroke. What symptoms would you describe? And, you know, just to summarize our talk today, what should they do? So what do you think to be classic symptoms of a stroke? I think the classic symptoms are uh, any kind of a speech problem, whether it's slurring or not making any sense or not understanding, and also facial droop as well as arm and leg weakness. Uh, sometimes people can just have dizziness or lightheadedness as well. Um, if there are any kind of those symptoms, just call 911. Just call 911 and say maybe he or she is having a stroke. Well, and I think just like we've done, you know, we talked earlier about cardiology and how important it is when you're having a heart attack. They now have these different parameters where if you're having a certain type of heart attack, they take a look at the time that you present to the emergency room, the time you go to the catheterization lab to try and minimize that amount of time so that if you really need to have an emergency procedure, you get it done as soon as possible. Similar, we're looking to establish the same thing for stroke from the point at which you walk in the door or actually the ambulance brings you in the door 
and you're seeing how can we figure out what is the most appropriate thing to do for you and make sure we get it done within this time interval. Because, you know, time is heart muscle. Time is 2 million brain cells per minute. That's right. I hope I have lots of billions of brain cells because that uh, that statistic really worries me. All right. Well, I want to really thank you for sharing your expertise with us and for all of the hard work that you do. Not only are you working creating the brand new guidelines for obstetric neurovascular services, but you're also doing the tele-neurology services throughout the islands and trying to head up the comprehensive stroke center at Queens Medical Center to make sure that we provide the best possible care for all of our patients and make sure that we can treat stroke as best as we can everywhere here in the islands on Oahu. So thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you for inviting me today. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer today is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you right here next week on The Body Show. We'll see you then.